Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather and worship you. And Father, as we look to your word now, we pray that you would put our hearts in a posture of worship to receive your words. I pray that you would help me to make your word clear and that, Lord, by your spirit, you would strengthen, convict, encourage, rebuke, save, that you would cause us to see the wonder of Christ this morning. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. The United States uh, Declaration of Independence says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I find it so fascinating that the founding fathers of America believe that one of the unalienable rights that were given to humanity by the creator was the pursuit of happiness. What was their reasoning for such a notion? Well, it's as the document states, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That is, it's, it's self-evident that human beings were made with the desire and longing to be happy, to be joyful. And guess what? They were right. Partly right, at least. There are many people who have never obtained happiness in life, but the desire for it has never been lost. Even the man who commits suicide never loses the desire to be happy. In fact, it's precisely the desire that has never been fulfilled that has left him with a feeling that the only solution is to take one's life. Theologians throughout church history have spoken to this reality, that humans, human beings have a, a longing to be happy no matter what. Richard Sibbs, the Anglican theologian, said this, Happiness being by all men desirable, the desire of it is naturally engrafted in every man and is the center of all the searchings of his heart and turnings of his life. Every human being without exception desires to be happy. Have you ever met a human being who doesn't? You might know someone who is miserable, but they still desire to be happy. Even the scriptures testify to the desire that humans have to be happy. In Psalm 90, is, uh, you have the prayer of Moses, and in verse 14 to 15, Moses prays this, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, and then he tells us why that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That is, we may rejoice and be happy all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and as for many years as we have seen evil. In the scriptures, you have prayers for happiness. Or you think of King David in Psalm 51, his psalm of confession. What is one of the requests he makes to God in the midst of his repentance and confession. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the happiness that I once had in your salvation. The human soul of every person desires to be happy 
and joy-filled. It's an inescapable longing. Now, for some reason, many Christians and pastors in modern evangelicalism have painted happiness in a negative light. They sought to make a distinction between happiness and joy. To them, happiness is something the world longs for. It's, it's shallow and it's, it's simply a feeling. Whereas joy is, is steady and it's, it's not so much a feeling but a mindset and an attitude from the Spirit. The world in its sinfulness longs for happiness, but Christians long for joy. A perfect example of this was the Christian author Oswald Chambers. He said this, Holiness of character, chastity of life, living in communion with God, that is the end of a man's life, whether he is happy or not, is a matter of moonshine. Now, I have no doubt that Chambers was a godlier man than I, but he was dead wrong in that statement. The Bible makes clear all throughout that our joy, our happiness, is extremely important to God. And this morning, I want to show us this. I want to spend our time looking at what God's Word says about happiness. Because you'll be amazed at how full the Scriptures are with the theme of happiness. So there are several things that I want us to see this morning. Uh, we're going to be jumping from passage to passage, so don't try to keep up by turning in your Bible. But I've provided references in your bulletin that you can look up later. Now, the first thing we need to do is simply define joy and happiness. For simplicity and for time's sake, I'm going to read to you a few definitions. Uh, definitions from regular dictionaries and then some dictionaries of, of biblical theology. So Merriam-Webster defines joy as a feeling of great happiness. The American Heritage Dictionary defines joy as intense and especially ecstatic or exultant happiness. So these, these are just normal dictionaries, but what I want you to see that all of these dictionaries demonstrate that joy and happiness are synonyms of each other. Also, we see in these definitions that joy is a feeling. And I think these definitions are accurate. Now let me read to you a, a dictionary definition from a biblically, biblically theology text. An evangelical dictionary of biblical theology defines joy as happiness over an unanticipated or present good. On the spiritual level, joy refers to the extreme happiness with which the believer contemplates salvation and the bliss of eternal life. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because for whatever reason, as I've mentioned, Christians, pastors, theologians in the last hundred years have tried to differentiate between joy and happiness despite the fact that they have no biblical grounds to do so. Not only that, all of church history stands in opposition to such a notion. You can read the reformers, the medieval theologians, the church fathers, and all of them speak of happiness and joy interchangeably. To have joy is to be happy, and to have happiness is to be joyful. In fact, there are several words in the scriptures that are used as synonyms. They're used interchangeably. You have joy, happiness, gladness, delight, and sometimes even the word pleasure. The scriptures often use parallelism, right? Words with similar meanings used in a close proximity to reinforce their meaning. We do this all the time when we talk to each other. I was so angry and mad. Now, am I saying that I was two different things? No. 
I'm using the word angry and mad to convey the same reality. Two different words conveying the same idea. And you see this in the scriptures with joy and happiness and gladness. So, for example, in Psalm 32, 11, we read this, Be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, why is this important? It's important because we ought not downplay the importance of happiness and joy in the Christian life. See, I think there's a lot of Christians, I think there's a lot of Christian thinking that believes deep down that to be happy is somehow inherently wrong, or at least it's not as virtuous or all that important. But there's nothing inherently wrong with happiness. There's only something wrong with our happiness when the object of our happiness is sinful or when the object of our happiness is an idol. See, what I want us to see is that God is just, just as concerned about your happiness as he is your holiness. He's concerned not just about how you live, but how you feel. So that's happiness, joy, Defined. Secondly, God commands us to be happy. He commands us to be happy. In Deuteronomy 28, 47, God is rebuking Israel, and this is what we read. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Israel is being rebu rebuked for the manner in which they served the Lord. That is, they served the Lord without joy, without happiness and gladness, and they were rebuked for it. Which means that God has an expectation that his children would serve him with happy hearts. Psalm 32, 11, which I already read, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That is not a suggestion. That is a command. Be glad in the Lord. The most obvious example, of course, is Paul's words in Philippians 4, 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That is, be happy in the Lord always. Again, I will say, be happy. That's what Paul's saying there. This is an apostolic command. And as Christians, we have a duty to be happy. God cares about how we feel. C.S. Lewis said, it is a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. Now, when we hear the word duty or command, we often think of drudgery, not happiness. But duty and happiness are not antithetical. So, for example, it's my duty to father my little girl, Inez. It's my moral responsibility to raise her rightly, to love and serve her. And guess what? It's also my joy and my happiness. Now, are there days when my duty to Father Inez feels more like a duty than a joy? Absolutely. Especially when she's having a bad day or if I'm having a bad day. But in general, it's a delight to be Inez's father. And it's also my duty. Duty and happiness are not antithetical. It's my duty to love God with all my heart. And it's also my joy to love God. It's my duty to become holy, and it's also my joy to become holy. It's my duty, 
as a Christian to be as happy as I can. You see, we all would agree that it's wrong to neglect our duty in becoming as holy as we can be because God has commanded us to be holy. Would it also not be true then that it's wrong to neglect our duty to be happy because God has commanded us to be happy? Now, does that mean that there's never a time to mourn? Does that mean that it's somehow evil to be sorrowful? No, not necessarily. The scriptures are full of examples of godly saints mourning and full of sorrow. In fact, the majority of the Psalms are full of laments. The people of God lamenting over the miserable situations they've been placed in. You think of Jeremiah's words in, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18, where he's, he's, he's grieved over the sinfulness of Israel. And he says this, my, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. The fact of the matter is there are moments, in fact, when God actually calls his people to mourning rather than joy. Think of James 4, 8-9. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You should be mourning and weeping because of your sinfulness, and instead you're laughing and happy when you ought to be sorrowful and mourning the sin in your life. Or you think of Ecclesiastes 3, 4. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. So God, in commanding us to rejoice and be glad, it doesn't mean that therefore there's never a time to mourn or, or a time to be sorrowful or that we as Christians aren't ever taken by despair. We know experientially that, that that's just not the case. And we know the scriptures affirm that. But what should define the Christian? is not sorrow, but joy. You see, I think one of the reasons God commands us to be happy is because if he didn't, we would wallow in our sufferings and our trials instead of pressing forward in the fight for joy. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not downplaying the reality of depression. Many godly Christians, my mom included, have suffered from deep depression. Charles Spurgeon experienced severe bouts of depression, yet he over and over again taught and believed that it was the Christian's duty to be happy. See, I think G.K. Chesterton nails it when he says, man is more himself, man is more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind, praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. God commands that his followers be joy-filled and happy. But God doesn't just command us to be happy in a general sense, happy for the sake of happiness. He's concerned about the object of our happiness, which leads to my third point. God desires and has made us to find our ultimate supreme happiness in him. All of those commands that I read earlier call us to be happy. But those commands have an object of our happiness. Those commands call us to be happy in God. 
Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. So when the scriptures command us to be happy, the object of our happiness is to be God. Our joy, our happiness as Christians is God. Now I want you to notice what I said in the point. I said we were made to find our ultimate or supreme happiness in God. Does that mean that it's therefore sinful to find any kind of happiness and joy in created things? Well, it depends on whether or not those created things are one's ultimate happiness or whether those created things serve our ultimate happiness in God. If one has placed their supreme happiness, for example, in nature, at the expense of happiness in God, that's sinful because it's idolatry. It's worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But if one finds happiness in nature in such a way that it leads them to rejoice and be thankful in God, then their happiness in nature is the means God has given to them to be happy in him. God is a God who delights to give his children things that make them happy. You think of 1 Timothy 6.17 where Paul gives this warning to the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now notice Paul doesn't command them to give all their wealth away. But he does say, don't set your hope on riches. And then he says this, but, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The God who created us, the God who redeemed us, has provided us with everything to enjoy. Everything to find happiness in. God wants us to enjoy the created things he's given us. He wants us to find happiness in them. Think of Proverbs 24, 13. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Why did God make honey sweet? So we could be happy. Ecclesiastes 9.7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. All the things that God has created in this world are meant to serve our happiness in him. In other words, created things are meant to be a servant for our joy in God. They are not to be our God. The problem is, is when we seek to find our ultimate happiness in created things, it's idolatry and it doesn't work. That is, it's impossible to find true lasting happiness in that which is created. Because the human soul was made to be enraptured with an infinite reality. And that's why I said we were made by God to find our supreme happiness in him. This is why temporal, created, material things can never truly satisfy in themselves and bring the all-satisfying happiness that our souls long for. We know this experientially. This is why Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Human experience has shown this over and over again. Tom Brady, after he had won his third Super Bowl ring, was interviewed by 60 Minutes correspondent Steve Croft. 
And Tom Brady said this to Mr. Croft. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. What's the answer, Mr. Croft asked. And Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Tom Brady has won four more rings since his third ring. And I bet you if he was asked that question again, he would say, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Possibly the most accomplished athlete ever. He has reached the pinnacle of sports. He's wealthy. He has beautiful kids, a beautiful wife. And yet he still isn't fully satisfied. He can't escape the feeling that there must be something more. Success, material things, created things can never truly bring the ultimate happiness we long for because our souls were made to find our happiness in that which is infinite, namely God. The woman at the well in John chapter 4 is a perfect picture of someone trying to find happiness in the creature rather than the creator. She comes to the well for water, of course, and and Jesus has this profound conversation with her. He confronts her over her sin. She's had five husbands, and the man she was currently with wasn't her husband. So this is a woman who has sought to find joy and happiness and satisfaction in sex and in men. And this is captured through her always having to come back to the well to quench her thirst. She's never truly satisfied or happy. And Jesus tells her that he has water that will cause her to never be thirsty again, for this spring of water will well up to eternal life. In other words, you've been drinking from the wrong well, seeking ultimate happiness in sex and men, but until you drink from me, you will never be truly happy and satisfied. Psychiatrist Paul Meyer said this, I've had millionaire businessmen come to my office and tell me they have big houses, yachts, condominiums, Nice children, a beautiful mistress, an unsuspecting wife, secure corporation positions, and suicidal tendencies. They have everything this world has to offer except one thing, joy. They come to my office as a last resort, begging me to help them conquer the urge to kill themselves. Nothing in this world can bring us the ultimate happiness we long for, The created can only point us to the ultimate happiness, which is God. C.S. Lewis said, what what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the the idea that they could be like gods, could set up up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. See, this is why if you're here this morning and if you're not a Christian, that in my honest opinion, you can never experience the same level of happiness that a Christian experiences because you've been cut off from the source. It's not that you can't experience happiness in created things, but your happiness is limited because all of those created things are limited. They're simply given to us to lead us to the source, for it's the source that can only truly bring the happiness we long for. 
Let me try to illustrate this. Imagine there's this giant of a mountain. And on this mountain, there's hundreds of little rivers flowing down into the ocean. And each of these little rivers represent little joys in life. So one river is, is the river of music. Music brings joy and happiness. Just ask Alfredo. Or another river is the river of literature or art and friendship, sports and play, food and drink, nature, marriage, sexual pleasure, children. There's all these different rivers of, of joy. But all these little rivers of joy are meant to flow into the ocean. These little joys culminate into this one overwhelming supreme joy as deep and as vast as the ocean. You see, if God is the ocean, then all the good things in life that bring levels of happiness are the rivers that flow into the ocean. That is, all the good pleasures of life are meant to lead us to the ocean where happiness reaches its climax. Nature, literature, movies, food, drink, dance, sports, music, play, friendship, parenting, these are all rivers that flow into the ocean. But if you don't believe in the ocean or experience the ocean, then you'll only ever know the little joys of the rivers. This is why the secularist, atheistic worldview can't bring about the fullness of happiness. Because though the atheist is able to enjoy the rivers, their worldview won't allow them to reach the ocean that the rivers flow into. In other words, they're never able to swim in the wonder of the ocean and therefore are never able to experience the everlasting, overflowing happiness that can only be found in the ocean, which is God. This is why John Flavel said this, Christ is the very essence of all delights and pleasures, the very soul and substance of them. As all the rivers are gathered into the ocean, so Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. Friend, you were made to find your ultimate happiness and joy in the infinite, unchanging, majestic God. And the problem is, is that you're always looking to find your joy and happiness in created things that will never ultimately satisfy your soul. It's like trying to satisfy one's physical hung hunger by gaping and keeping one's mouth open to take in the wind, hoping that the wind will satisfy your hunger. And when you're not satisfied, you conclude, maybe I didn't take in enough wind. When the real reason you're not satisfied is because the wind is not suitable to satisfy your physical hunger. In the same way, the things of this world are not suitable to bring you the ultimate happiness that you seek. Only God can do so. George MacDonald, when speaking about his conversion to Jesus, said this, One of my greatest difficulties in consenting to think of religion was that I thought I should have to give up my beautiful thoughts and my love for the things that God has made. But I find the happiness springing from all things, not in themselves sinful, is much increased by my faith. God is the God of the beautiful. Religion, the love of the beautiful. And heaven, the house of the beautiful. Nature is tenfold brighter in the sun of righteousness. And my love of nature is more intense since I became a Christian. 
God has not given me such thoughts and forbidden me to enjoy them. Will he not in them enable me to raise a voice of praise? Do you understand what McDonald's saying? When God became the source of his happiness, when he was saved by Jesus Christ, the enjoyment of created things did not decrease, but increased and led him to deep praise and worship of God for being the source of these delights. Friend, God has made you to find your ultimate happiness in him. He wants to satisfy you with his own goodness. As he says in Jeremiah 31, 14, my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Now we need to ask why. Why does God command us to be happy and why has he made us to find our ultimate happiness in him? And the answer is quite simple. It's because God is infinitely happy. God is infinitely happy. God commands us to be happy, and he has made us to be happy in him because he is happy. Now, this might be one of the most neglected truths in modern Christianity. Very few theologians and pastors have drawn attention to this truth, despite the fact that theologians in church history have spoken much about God's happiness. The most probably notable modern theologian slash pastor who has drawn attention to God's happiness is, of course, John Piper. But for the most part, many Christians will grow up in the church never hearing about the happiness of God. In fact, I would argue more Christians assume God to be angry than happy. Now, there is no doubt that the scriptures affirm God's holy anger against sin. God stands in hostile opposition to anything that would reduce the happiness of his image bearers and creatures. But understand this. Anger is not a characteristic of God, whereas happiness is. God's wrath is the manifestation of him being just and righteous. But wrath is not one of his attributes. It's the manifestation of the fact that he is just. You think about it this way. God's anger is not eternal, whereas his happiness is. God has always been happy in himself, the triune God, father and son, delighting in one another, whereas his anger is temporal and a response to sin. You think of Psalm 34 to 5, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. See, many Christians have never, have never even heard of the idea that God is happy. But the scripture affirms God's happiness both indirectly and directly. Let me give you a few examples, both indirectly and directly. Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now we know that heaven is a place of holiness. It's a place of love. Why? Because God is both holy and loving. So if in God's presence there is fullness of joy, isn't the logical conclusion that the reason for there being joy in God's presence is because God is a being that overflows with joy? No one would remotely believe that in God's presence there is fullness of joy if he were miserable. Heaven is a place of holiness because God is there. Heaven is a place of love because God is there. Heaven is a place of happiness because God is is there. 
Now, I don't have time to unpack this, but the Bible testifies to the idea that God is both happy within himself, he is the only being that is happy within himself, the triune God, but also that he is happy in what he has created. For example, Isaiah 62, 5, this is, uh, in Isaiah 62, is this beautiful picture of God uh, delighting in his people, his redeemed people, and this is what we read. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God rejoices, delights over his redeemed people like a groom who rejoices over his bride the first moment he sees her walking down the aisle in splendor and beauty. Or Isaiah 65, 19, this glorious picture of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth. And this is what we read about God. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God will be happy in his people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Now let me give you two examples in the New Testament from the same letter in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11... Paul's talking about how the law of God is good if it's used lawfully and that it's been laid down for the lawless and anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. And then he says these words in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel, that is the good news of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now that word blessed in the Greek is actually better translated happy. Historically, blessed meant happy, but in our context, the word blessed has taken on a different meaning. But what Paul is actually saying there is this, in accordance with the good news of the glory of the happy God. The good news is not just about the the atoning death of Jesus, though that's true, but it's also about the glory of the happy God. Now, if you don't believe me, then, then at least believe Spurgeon. This is what Spurgeon said about 1 Timothy 1-11. The gospel is the gospel of happiness. It is called the glorious gospel of the blessed God. A more correct translation would be the happy God. Well then, adorn the gospel by being happy. Paul articulates here that the gospel is good news that relates to the glory of the happy God. Or in 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 15-16, to 16, We read this, which he will display, that is the coming of Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed, the happy, and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This God, who is the only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, is also the one who is happy. A.W. Pink, reflecting on this verse, said this, God himself, the triune God, is the source of all blessedness and joy. God is self-sufficient, infinitely blessed and happy in himself. See, one of the attributes of the God of Christianity is that he is happy. Just as he is infinitely loving, infinitely holy, so he is infinitely happy. And this is why he commands us to be happy. This is why he desires for us to be happy. We are called to reflect God. 
What kind of witness are we to the world if Christians are miserable? Think about it. Why does God command us to be loving? Because he is loving. Why does God command us to be holy? Because he is holy. For as the word says, be holy, for I am holy. Why does God command us to be merciful? Because he is merciful. Why does God command us to be just? Because he is just. Why does God command us to be happy? Because he is happy. Spence Jones, the general editor to the pulpit commentary, said this. God has joy. He is not indifferent, nor is he morose, that is cranky. We are to think of him as the blessed God, as essentially happy. The brightness and beauty of the world are reflections from the blessedness of God. Because he is glad, nature is glad. Flowers bloom, birds sing, young creatures bound with delight. Nothing is more sad in perversions of religion than the representations of God as a gloomy tyrant. These fragrant meadows, broad rolling seas of moorland heather, rich green forest cities of busy insect life, flashing ocean waves and the pure blue sky above and all that is sweet and lovely in creation swell one symphony of gladness because the mighty spirit that haunts them is himself overflowing with joy. Our God is a son, a son, and if, if divinity is sunny, so should, so should religion be. The happy God will rejoice in the happiness of his children. God is so joyous that he finds joy even in us. Our sovereign, all-powerful, holy God is also a happy God. And I think we ought to be talking more about God as the happy God in a world full of such misery and sorrow. This, friends, is why God commands us to be happy. And this is why he desires for us to be happy in him. But here's a fundamental question. If we're called to be happy in God, how do we actually get to him? How do we get to this God, this ocean of happiness? How do we get from simply swimming in the river to swimming in the ocean of God's happiness? And this leads to my final point, and this is where the significance of Christmas comes in. How do we get to the ocean? God sent his son in order to bring us to the ocean and give us everlasting happiness in him. The way to get to the ocean is through Jesus. God sent his son to redeem us and lead us to the ocean of God's happiness. Sin has separated us from God. Sin has made us blind to God, who is the source of all happiness. And because of this, we seek to find our happiness in created and sinful things. We're continually stuck in the rivers, trying to find our satisfaction and happiness in things that cannot truly satisfy and bring us happiness. And because of this, we know this experientially, over time, those rivers run dry. And slowly but surely, there's no longer any current. That which we thought, we thought would satisfy our thirst no longer is able to. But the whole story of Christmas is about what God has done through Jesus Christ to not only see the rivers flowing with water, but also to bring us to the ocean of God's happiness. When the angels appeared to the shepherds in Luke 2, 
declaring in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, great happiness that, the, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why didn't the angels simply say, I bring you good news that will be for all the people? Why did they think it necessary to add of great joy? Because the purpose of the good news, the goal of the good news is to create a redeemed people who are overcome with happiness in God. The good news of salvation is meant to take a people enslaved to misery, sin, and guilt, and to turn them into a forgiven, free, and happy people in God. Isaiah 35.10 paints this beautiful picture of, 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 of redemption. And of course, in, in, the, in the context, it's speaking to Israel's return from exile. But we know that, that Israel's return from exile is a foreshadowing of the ultimate redemption of God's people through Jesus' redemption. And this is what we read in Isaiah 35.10. And the ransomed, the redeemed of the Lord, shall return and come to Zion with what? With singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The end result of God's redemption for his people is that of singing, everlasting happiness, and sorrow shall be no more. The grounds for our happiness is Christmas. None of these things would be true if Jesus didn't come into our world as a baby and grow up as a man and then die in our place as the man of sorrows. The happy God came to us in human form in the face of Jesus to save us from our sin and our misery and to invite us into his infinite happiness. Jesus became a man of sorrows that we might become a people of happiness. So where do we begin in getting to the ocean of God's happiness? We begin with coming to the Lord Jesus, the one who drank our sin and our misery in order that we might be redeemed and brought to the ocean of God's supreme happiness. As Octavius Winslow said, the religion of Christ is the religion of joy. Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open our prison house, to counsel our debt. Is not this joy? Where can we find a joy so real, so deep, so pure, so lasting? There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying, sanctifying joy in the gospel of Christ. The believer in Jesus is essentially a happy man. Christ is the key that unlocks the door to the happiness of God. Don't refuse the key. Now, I was hoping to give some principles on how to cultivate happiness in God. Because if you want to be happy, you actually have to cultivate happiness. But that's basically another sermon in and of itself. So maybe in the new year, I'll devote a sermon to cultivating happiness in the Christian life. But here's how I want to end off this, morning, this sermon this morning. I want to, by God's grace, light a flame in your soul that would cause you to rejoice in our great God. That would cause you to find your happiness in God. That's what I hope to do here now by the power of the Spirit, that you would rejoice in God as I articulate all the reasons 
for why we ought to be happy in God. So here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always, brothers and sisters, for the God we worship is eternally and infinitely happy. Rejoice in the Lord always, for you've been made in his image and likeness. You've been knit together in your mother's womb, and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Rejoice in the Lord always, because all that we have comes from his benevolent hand, for every good and perfect gift is from above. He allows the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. Rejoice in the Lord always, for not a hair on your head will perish. That's Luke 21, 18. Rejoice in the Lord always, for our light, momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Rejoice in the Lord always, for our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Rejoice in the Lord always, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Rejoice in the Lord always, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always, because we who were once enemies of God have become sons and daughters of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always, for he who began a good work in you has promised to bring it to completion. Rejoice in the Lord always, for we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, which comes from the Spirit. Rejoice in the Lord always, for you've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Rejoice in the Lord always, for you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Rejoice in the Lord always, because you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always, because in love God has predestined us for adoption as his sons and his daughters. Rejoice in the Lord always, because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good according to his purpose. Rejoice in the Lord always, brothers and sisters, because there is nothing, absolutely nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always because Christ has canceled the record of our sin by nailing it to the cross and putting it to death. Rejoice because our sins have been forgiven. Rejoice in the Lord always, for in Christ we are new creatures. The old has passed away, the new has come. Rejoice in the Lord always, for we have become God's partakers of God's divine nature. Rejoice in the Lord always, for one day this perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body will put on immortality, and death will be swallowed up in victory. Rejoice in the Lord always. For he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Rejoice in the Lord always, for one day God will be with us, and we will be his people, and there will be no need for the sun or the moon. For the glory of God will be our light, and the lamp will be the lamp. All of this, 
and for so many other reasons, we have reason to be the happiest people on the face of the earth. Be happy in the Lord. Always be happy in him. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for not finding our happiness in you. And restore to us the joy of your salvation. And I pray, God, that by your spirit, there might be people here this morning who for the first time would find their happiness in Christ. And for my dear brothers and sisters who are struggling with despair and discouragement, light a flame of happiness in them, a happiness in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.